0: You've seen this video in your high school history class, Orville and Wilbur Wright, the Wright brothers, uh, here at, um, doesn't look like the Outer Banks anymore, but that's the way the Outer Banks looked like, 1903. So 114 years ago, uh, man took flight for the very first time. They didn't have to pass through any security check in order to get on their plane. Didn't have to worry about any check bags. Flight was a little too short for any in-beverage service. Uh, The entire flight, 59 seconds. So just under a minute, and then 852 feet. And so this is the first time man got up in the air in this way. Um, But the, the first time for them to get up in the air was 1903, but their vision for this actually started... 25 years earlier. So as young boys, what happened one day is their father came home and occasionally he would have things that he picked up somewhere to give his boys and he walks in and he's got this object that's kind of covered, it's partially covered, and they start coming towards him and he throws the object up in the air and instead of the object falling to the ground, it starts twirling and actually goes up and hits the ceiling And after several seconds, it falls to the ground. And, of course, they run over to chase and get this new toy. It's called a helicopter. And that's when something snapped for Orville and Wilbur Wright. Something captured their imagination. Something got their attention in a way to say, we want to think more about this and eventually how this is going to end up in taking flight. And so, let, let, me, let me let you hear their uh, re- remembrance of that. It was a light frame of cork and bamboo covered with paper, which formed two screws driven in opposite directions by rubber bands. You've probably seen something like this. Now, this is a great uh, closing line. It was a toy so delicate that it lasted only a short time in the hands of small boys. <laughs> Have you ever gotten those little cheap planes from the air you know the airport that one flight and if they hit anything they just you know crumble they're made of sawdust I think and it, but this is what they say but its memory was abiding you hear that it was a little short moment but that moment something snapped something captured their attention something captured their imagination. Now they probably had different toys at different points, but there was something about this that, that caught their attention. And when they saw this thing flying across the room, this helicopter, this paper helicopter, uh, a vision for human flight was, that's when it began. And so that's our topic of conversation this morning is vision. How to have a vision, how to create a vision. And this topic might be a topic that some of you get stuck on, and I mean this in the best way, for several weeks or even several months. It's not something that that I don't think they thought of this the very first time they saw the helicopter. They just had a vision of something else happening where men could get into some kind of contraption. And so I want to talk about vision this morning. So a definition of vision... Uh, I'm going to go back to another slide in just a minute. A definition of vision is this, a preferred future. It's a picture of what could and should be done. So a vision is I see something in the future, and I have a preference for that. I want it to happen. I want to make that a reality, so I have a vision for it. And maybe that's clear in your mind or maybe it's not, but that's, that's the idea of a vision. I have a picture in my hand of what could be done or maybe what should be done. And sometimes it begins, like for the, the rites, as something captures your imagination. Something sparks something. But quite frequently it happens because, against something. You have a negative reaction. You have a frustration. You have a concern that grows and you say, this has to be changed. So you might come at it from one way saying, I'm excited about something. There's something out in the future that, that isn't yet in, in existence that I would like to make happen. Or you might have experienced something or felt something or seen something and say, this can't stay this way. Something has to change. And I would call that, if you're a Christian, a holy discontent. Something, God puts something in your way to say, I want you to get involved in this. And it might be something small, might be uh, something big like just a person's life, or it could be something much bigger than that. But something where it's, it be, a passion begins to, to boil, and you say, I've got to do something different. And this holy get discontent, I think, is exactly what happens to Nehemiah. He hears something, and he, he has a reaction. This can't stay this way. We, we can't stay here in this condition. And I don't know if he knows exactly what it's going to mean for him or exactly what he's going to do, but something sparks, something stirs, and that's where we pick this up in Nehemiah chapter 1, the words of Nehemiah. So this is basically reading Nehemiah's journal. And here's how it happened. This is the moment uh, that the helicopter went off and and something captured his imagination Uh, in the month of Chislev in the 20th year. So he remembers exactly when it was. He knows exactly where he was. He's in this capital city of Susa. He He remembers exactly who it was. So he's got a very vivid memory of when something snapped. One of his brothers came with certain men who had been in Judah this is like a uh, think of it as a county, and the county seat is Jerusalem, and they'd come back 500 mile trip and they then he asked them, well, tell us about our brothers, our, our, our nation uh, who escaped uh, who had escaped the persecution and were still still living in Jerusalem, those who had survived. And this is what they said to me, the remnant there, the leftover Jews, the ones who haven't been dragged to Babylon, uh, there in the province who had survived the exile, they're in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem, this, this defensive protective wall, it's broken down and the gates are destroyed. As soon as I heard these words, something snapped. I sat down, I wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So, what happens with Nehemiah is he's part of a group that gets deported. God's people had been unfaithful, and part of that unfaithfulness caused an invasion from Babylon. Now, you think of modern day Iraq. And the Babylonians came in, and they took all the great people, all the scholars, anybody who was artistically inclined, anybody who was a ruler, and they took all those people out of Israel, and they brought them to their hometown to become slaves. So the people that were left, they weren't, they weren't in the highest education level, they weren't in the highest leadership level, and they, they destroyed the walls of Jerusalem as they left. So there was no way for Jerusalem to defend itself. And here Nehemiah is. We're going to find out he's a servant for the king. And he hears these words 142 years after the exile. So this is a long time. He's never been to Jerusalem. But his family, his history, his ancestry is there. And he's he's got some kind of concern about it, which is why he's asking about it. And when he hears the report, something lodges like a splinter in his mind. It, it, it's painful, it hurts, and it, it doesn't quickly get extracted. And so he begins to think, he begins to have a vision of, well, what can I do? And he doesn't know exactly what he's going to get involved with. But just like the Wright brothers, Nehemiah hears something. He hears something about the sad condition and, and it grabs his imagination. He has this holy discontent. And he doesn't know what role he should play. He doesn't know what he's going to do but something has to change. That's just the beginning. That's the beginning of every vision. Sometimes it's more clear than that, but most of the time it's we can't stay here. I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to be involved. I'm not exactly sure where we're going to go, but we can't stay in this condition. And so something churns in uh, his mind. So this morning I want us to think about vision in two ways, and you might think of it as Two sides to the same coin, because they go together. Can't just focus on one. Uh, but the first one, first side of the coin is, is a, per, a personal vision for yourself. A personal vision for yourself. And then the second one is, or maybe I should say this, a, a personal vision for your soul. That would be better. And second is what you do. First, Dallas Willard says this, what you become as a person is more important than what you achieve. What you become as a person is more important than what you achieve. So that's what I'm focusing in on this first part. What you become as a person, what vision you have for your, your soul, that's more important than what you, what you achieve. That, that's more important than your, your tombstone resume. Right? I, I worked here. I did this. I got this accomplished. Now, that's important. We're t- going to talk about that in a minute. But most importantly is, is what, who you become. Jesus really says the same thing. Mark chapter 8, we're all familiar with his phrase. He's got this group, a large group of people around him. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but what? But if he forfeits his soul. In other words, if he's got a tremendous resume that all of us would want but he hasn't gotten the vision for his soul, then it's really no profit to him. Jesus isn't trying to say what the guy does is unimportant, but he he had his priorities out of whack. For what can a man give for his soul? You can't give anything in exchange for your soul. When it gets to the end, you can't turn in your resume and say, can I get my soul back? It doesn't work that way. And so it's very easy for men, especially men in America, men in our culture, to to increase, constantly try to increase their exterior life, but never work on increasing their interior life. So I'm constantly trying to increase my exterior life. How how can I get more, whatever it is? And I'm not saying they're bad things, But I've got goals. I've got goals for my retirement. I've got goals for my family. I've got goals for my church. I've got all kinds of different goals, and I'm trying to increase my exterior life. But my question here is, do you have anything, any goal, anything that's going to increase your soul? Or when you get to the end, you're going to have this huge exterior life, but this tiny little box of your soul. You never really worked on your, your interior life. Your exterior life, your body, your career, your car, your 401k, those are things that you can see. Those are things you can measure, and I like things I can see, and I like things I can measure. And so it's very easy to, look, to, to work on those. But your soul, how do you measure that? How do you see it? And so what happens is we neglect that. And some people would say, some of you might say, I don't have any idea what you're talking about, Paul. Paul. I don't know how to work on my soul. If you tell me about my business or you tell me about my retirement, I can give you some ideas or I can know who to go to. But what do I even do to increase the capacity of my soul? I never even thought about that. I'm just trying to stir that up. And here's my question for you. If a contingent of men just came back from a visit to your soul and they were gonna give a report, just like Nehemiah, A contingent of men went to Jerusalem. They come back and they say, here's what's the condition of Jerusalem. They're in great trouble. All the walls are broken down. If we send a contingent, if we could, I wish we could. Maybe I wish we couldn't. If we could send a, 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 a group of people to your soul and they were to come back and say, hey, I just visited Charlie's soul. Here's what I found. What, what's your answer to that question? What does your soul look like? See, you can't have a vision for it until you understand what's our current condition. And so I want you to think, what's the current condition of my soul? What would somebody give a report back for? What would they say? So what you become as a per- person is more important than what you achieve as a person. Do you have a vision for your soul? Do you know the current condition of your soul? Now, I could say a lot more about that, but that's, that's the first side of the coin, I, and that's the most important side of the coin. A lot of times when you hear vision, it's, it's a catchphrase that gets to the top of a letterhead, and it's for a business. I'm not saying that's bad, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to move that to your soul first. Do you have a vision for your soul? Do you know the current conditions? So I want to flip now to the second side of the coin. And do you have a vision uh, for yourself? What you do with your life is not unimportant, it's just secondary. Secondary. For Nehemiah, we know from his history, his his biography here, he was a slave. He was an engineer, or at least a leader of a bunch of engineers that built a wall. And he ended up being the governor for a period of time in Jerusalem. We We know those are three roles that he played. A slave, a builder of a wall, a governor. All those are important for Nehemiah. I mean, obviously, they're very different, that he kind of gets on both ends of the scale. Uh, But I want you to notice he wasn't ever a preacher. He wasn't ever an evangelist. And the reason I'm trying to say that is a lot of times it gets to feel like the important work is the preacher and the evangelist, and I just stuck doing 50 or 60 hours a week over here as a slave or a builder of a wall. That's not that. If you've got that in your mind, you've got to erase that. So Nehemiah, he's a businessman. He's a slave, he's a businessman, he's a politician. All those roles, all those things are important. So now if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, then I think you could come to Iron Leadership. You could get help to say, I've got to think about what my vision is. I've got to try to chart a course. There are going to be some hurdles along the way, and I need to work through those, and, and this would be helpful for me. I think you could get some help for you. But if you're a Christian, and I think most of us here are, then, then you don't have the right to dream your own dream and develop your own picture for yourself. If you're a Christian, you, don't, you gave up that right. Why? You were bought at a price. 1 Corinthians. You've been bought with a price, and you are not your own. So you don't get an opportunity to just go over here and live for yourself. That's a non-Christian. You can figure that out. But if you're a Christian, hey, I, now I've been bought. I'm, a, I'm now a, a, a pawn in the king's hand. And he, this is one of the key things, he has a vision for you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are God's workmanship. You hear that? God went to work on you. He has a vision for you. He made you in a certain way. He put certain things in your, your, your bucket of capacity, whether it's leadership or intelligence or, or humor or whatever it is. He's put those things in there. They didn't just happen. He put you in the, in this city at this time. You're his workmanship. And you're created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that come to your mind no to do the good works which God prepared in advance for you and I to do so you and I are God's workmanship we are a product of God's vision just having that in our mind that's got to sink all the way down as a Christian I'm a product of God's vision he had a vision for Paul Phillips and he put him on this planet and he allowed all these things to happen to get him to today, 54. Maybe I have another day. Maybe I have another year. Maybe I don't. I don't know. But I'm a product of God's vision. And he, he gave me things. It wasn't just my family. It wasn't just my culture. It wasn't just my education. But it's a product of God's vision. And he has a picture of who you should be and what you should do. So it's our responsibility to live into his vision, whether that's a slave or as a foreman or as a governor. So whose vision do you have for what you do? Or are on the other side of the coin. Is it just you? I just always wanted to do this, and I just did it. And you can do a lot of good things. I'm just saying, is it your vision or is it God's vision for what you're doing? See, a lot of men just get up and say, I do my thing for 50 hours a week, and then I do my church or my God thing for whatever amount of time. That's, that's not a good vision. He doesn't, he doesn't want to just discount what you do for 50 hours a week at work. So I want to just close with one observation about the beginning of Nehemiah's vision. And that is, if you have a vision it will cause a structural change in your life. It must cause a structural change in your life. If it doesn't cause a structural change in your life, you don't have a vision, you have a wish. And we all have wishes. I'm not saying that's bad, but that's not the same as a vision. I wish I was 20 pounds lighter. Okay, great. You should wish for more, Paul. That's what you might say. (laughs) <laughs> a vision is going to cause a structural change. And a lot of times you say, I got a vision for this, I got a vision for that, I got a vision. You got all these visions, but it doesn't ever cause a structural change. And I just want to want you to change your vocabulary to say, I just got a lot of wishes, but I'm not actually going to get involved for 25 years in order to make it happen. See, this isn't this. We live in a society that I have a wish, and it should be fulfilled within about thirty seconds, right? I got some coffee; it's gotten cold. I need the microwave to heat it up. That's how. That's about the length of our time. But but a vision is I get involved and I start making structural changes. That something could happen in a week, certainly, but it might happen twenty-five years later. That's the difference between a wish and a vision. And I would just want to ask you to think about when I have a vision for my soul or I have a vision for what I do, has it caused a structural change? I wish I was just spiritually more mature. A vision for being spiritually more mature is you change your habits. A wish is I just keep coming to church and I leadership, but you know what, I never really do anything with the stuff. That's just a wish. For Nehemiah, what happens? Prays, fasts, and he sits before the Lord. That's the first step in getting into God's vision. For your soul or for what you do. And if I could just give you that, if I could, if I could give you one discipline, one personal discipline, one structural change you would make in your life, it would be this thing. Because this thing would be the first domino that would create this cascading effect for so many other things. But if you don't do this one thing, I'm not saying you're not a Christian, I'm not saying you can't find out what God wants you to do to your life, but you're going to be so handicapped because you're going to be limited just to what I I woke up at five o'clock this morning going fast and I'm just running through my day. It doesn't mean God can't work through me, but it's really a handicap if I'm not sitting and saying, God, I'm making a structural change in my life to sit before you because there might be all kinds of divine appointments today that if I'm not in tune, I would just blow right by them. So this is the one habit you have to put in place that changes everything else. Now, we've seen this video before, but this is the video that, to me, is uh, so helpful in trying to just get that one practice into place. And we're going to watch this, and then I'll make one comment, and we'll get into groups.
1: advertising executive came down to talk to me after a service, and he had just become a Christian. I had, I had baptized him at the church, and so, and uh, he said, I just can't make time for a meeting with God. He said, you have no idea what it's like to commute downtown every day and you live in a different world. I, can't, I just can't fit, it, fit that kind of thing into my life. And I remember looking at this young guy, hard-charging young guy, and, and I said, here's my experience, and I'm not, you know, I'm only like 24 years old, so there it is. I said, I've always been able to make time for stuff I value. Just how my life works. If I value something, I'll make time to experience it. If I don't, I won't. And I'm making time for a meeting with God in my life. You do it any way you want. And uh, he wasn't too happy with me that day, I don't think. And I didn't see him for a while. And then afterwards, I saw him many months later. And when he came down to talk to me, he, his countenance was different. He felt different. His conversation was different. And he invited Lynn and me. He and his wife invited Lynn and me to go over to their house for dinner. So we accepted. He lived right in the area. And so we go over to their house And uh, as we're kind of just having some appetizers beforehand, he takes me over to a rocking chair. And he says, you know how you challenged me to have a meeting with God and to just to make the time. He said, I I love rocking chairs, so I bought a good one. And you said that maybe if you're going to make this repeatable and enjoyable, you should look at some scene or vista that you enjoy looking at. And he said, I've got a little backyard here, and I love looking over the backyard. So he said, I... I just bought this chair, and I put it in the, at my favorite window where I can overlook the backyard, and he said, I got up a half hour earlier, 15, 20 minutes, half hour earlier each day, the last several months. I sit in the chair, I have a cup of coffee, and he goes, I read God's Word, I try to make sense of it, I ask Him to speak to me by His Word, then I meditate on it, reflect it, apply it to my life. Then he said, I write some thoughts down in a journal and I pray. I pray that I will be more aware of his presence in my life. And I said, how's how's that going for you? And his wife jumped in and said, I'll tell you how it's going for him. He's a changed guy. What happens to him when he sits in that chair has changed him. He's more centered. He's a more gentle and loving man in our marriage and to our children I was very impressed with this, that he could show me his chair, that he had taken the time, that he had fashioned a meeting with God that he looked forward to, because he liked the chair, he liked the view, he liked the coffee, he was a morning guy, and he fell into this pattern. Many months later, uh, I had coffee with him one time, and he said, I'm thinking about leaving my job in advertising. He said, it just, it, um, I think I'm done with that. I said, where'd you get these ideas? And he said, well, in my meetings with God in the chair. That's, he's been putting those thoughts in my mind. I said, what are you going to do? And he said, maybe I'll just help you build the church. I said, well, no one's getting paid around here, you know. <laughs> and he said, well, I've done pretty well in advertising. I can hold on for a while. And, and uh, maybe if the church grows, you know, then maybe they can help me and my family in some way. And I said, well, you better go back to that chair and see if God's really in this, because I don't want to take responsibility for your life and all this. And he said, okay, I will, and came back about a month later, and he said, you know, I, I gave notice at, at work, and if it's all the same to you, I'm just going to help you start building the church. You pay me what you can, but it's not a concern of mine. And this guy joined our staff, and I'm telling you, he was a hard-working, energized, joyful, uh, industrious individual that really, really helped our church, and was on our staff for many, many years, one of the best staff members in the early days of the church. Then one day he comes into my office and he said, you know, I I still do that meeting with God in that chair, that rocking chair. And he said, God's been stirring in my life in my meetings with God. And he said, a friend of mine's starting a brand new church in Colorado, and I think I'm gonna pack my family up and move to Colorado. I said, can they support you? He said, no, I'm gonna have to go back into the marketplace And make some money because they they can't afford anything. And uh, I said, are you ready to do that? And he said, you know, every morning I talk to God about it. And he said, I'm really fired up about it. So we said goodbye to him and he packed his family up and he went out and he went back into advertising, made a lot of money, and gave most of it to the startup church. And it became a fantastic church. And then in that same chair that he moved out to Colorado, sitting at a window in the morning like he had done for many, many years now, he processed a bad medical report he got from the doctor that cancer had come his way. And he kept working and he kept supporting that church and uh, he got sicker and sicker. It was a very fast-spreading kind of cancer. And uh, then he was hospitalized and one of the great... Losses he felt when he was in the hospital is that he didn't have his chair. And he died quite soon thereafter, and I did his funeral in Colorado. And I was talking to his widow, his wife, uh, at the funeral reception afterwards. I said, That was something about that chair, wasn't it? She said, His whole life changed in that chair
0: his whole life changed now earlier he says he fell into a pattern now he's just talking so I'm not trying to bust on Bill Hybels he's a good speaker but the guy didn't fall into a pattern he established a pattern he got up 30 minutes earlier He did something everybody here can do. Open your Bible. Say, God, speak to me through your word. And just start praying. 15, 20, 30 minutes. But he made, this guy made a structural change that didn't change the rest of his life. And he didn't have any idea what he was asking Bill Hybels that first time. What, how it was going to go. But he started, just like Nehemiah, with this one structural change that was trying to increase the capacity of his soul first, that would then increase his exterior life in the church and then another church in Colorado. See, that's the way to work it. But so often we're starting with the exterior capacity, just hoping somehow our interior capacity is going to grow, and it just never does. So we're going to have some questions. Vision for yourself. What's the condition of your soul? Again, if a group of guys went to your soul and came back, what's their report? What difference does it make knowing you're a product of God's vision? What's a structural change you need to make? I'm going to give you about 12 minutes. So I wouldn't get in a group more than three because you're going to need more time than that. If you want to get in a group of two, that's fine. And then I'll uh, I'll close this in prayer. Ready? Break.